Welcome to Farmgate, I'm Finlo Castain. It's widely accepted that climate change can have an impact on food availability in developing countries, and that these impacts can act on existing vulnerabilities and threats and lead to conflict. But what about developed nations? Countries like the United Kingdom or the United States of America? Could our own food availability be threatened by climate change? Could the complexity of our supply chains make us more vulnerable than we realise? And could future food scarcity mean that existing but largely latent social tensions begin to fracture? Do we think that we're not vulnerable? Do you think it's only in developing countries that you have climate risk? And the answer is absolutely not. The US, the UK, we are, we are vulnerable. We'd be living in a pretty challenging world. I think we face the risks of not just an uncomfortable world, we'd also have a world with uncertainty. Uncertainty about where our food's going to come from, whether our imports, our trade is going to flow. And I think we'd become a pretty touchy world as well in the process. So we really have got to do something about it. In this programme, I'll speak to Caitlin Werrell, the co-founder of the Washington-based think tank, the Centre for Climate and Security, which works with the Pentagon and advises the US government. And I'll talk to Rear Admiral Neil Morissetti, the UK's former climate, energy and security envoy and former special representative for climate change. Global warming leading to food shortages and insecurity, increased poverty and climate-related migration will emphasise existing inequalities in developed nations and could act alongside other social undercurrents to build greater resentments and increase the threat of civil unrest. As the world continues to warm, the resilience of our crops and food infrastructure could mean the difference between a civilization that continues to thrive and a broken society in which communities are forced to defend food supplies from other citizens. I have a fear that by 2060, when my children are about the age that I am now, if we continue on current warming trajectories, then people not only in developing countries, but those living in mature democracies and economies such as the UK and the USA could be facing severe disruptions to food supplies, water and nutrition. I asked Neil Morissetti whether he thinks I'm right to worry. Yeah, I think you are, because, I mean, the causes of conflict are multiple, um, and there's a myriad of factors that come to bear in why conflict or instability occurs in different places in a different world. Different um, communities have different degrees of resilience to the challenges they face. But we know that at a time when the world's population is still growing, and the aspirations of those who are on the planet are increasing, there's only a finite amount of food and water and land available. And anything that adds to the pressure on that, perhaps because of a scarcity of food or, or an imbalance, one area having too much, another area not enough, can only cause a degree of tension. So, so are we thinking that climate change um, it can directly lead to conflict? Or is it something that, um, that contributes, that sort of layers on top of other issues in order to lead to conflict? Is it, is it one or the other or a combination? Very much the latter. You can't rule out the possibility of a war or a conflict being started solely by climate change, but that's pretty unlikely. But as an accelerant or a threat multiplier, then I think it is much more likely. And it's a bit like, I mean, it's like throwing a bucket of petrol on a, on a smouldering fire. It, it will inflame the situation, it will cause challenges, and in some communities may result in 
conflict or just instability. People talk about um, society being nine meals for anarchy, which um, which puts uh, puts food uh, right at the heart of the potential for society to break down. Um, how important do you think that food is? Yeah, I mean, nine meals um, and probably two days of water away from, from not necessarily anarchy, but certainly instability um, and rising tensions. And different countries, different communities, different degrees of resilience. But even in the developed world, world, I think our, our pain threshold is quite low in these sort of areas. And there's risks of people becoming vociferous or starting to complain or starting to, to, to look after themselves if they are missing things that they've become, they've become used to and are expecting to have particular staple things of food and water. Caitlin Werrell has spent more than a decade assessing the security risks of climate change. She co-founded the Centre for Climate and Security in 2010, and she spoke to me following the launch of the first World Climate and Security Report. So the expert group of the International Military Council on Climate Security, which is a group of senior military leaders, security experts, and security institutions from across the globe, uh, just put out its first World Climate and Security Report. It's a very extensive report. Uh, it looks at uh, climate and security in various different regions. Um, what we found was that increasingly, more and more, uh, militaries are sounding the alarm on climate change. They're seeing uh, how it's affecting their own mission sets, um, but they're also calling on diplomacy and development civilian lead for how we actually attack and deal with with climate security risks. One of the major survey findings was that 93% of those who were surveyed see that the likelihood of water insecurity and by 2030 will pose a significant or higher risk to global security. I mean, the way that fits in with agriculture is fundamental that you need water to produce food. <laughs> and, and so when you have changes to water availability, um, and a lot of times we talk about water scarcity, there's a sense that it's just uh, droughts, but it's actually also sometimes it's too much water, or and sometimes it's also just water variability where you have the greatest risk to things like food security, where you have a drought and a flood in succession. We're also seeing more things when you do have water scarcity and it affects your food production. This can scale up into higher order risks. This is where you can have conflict, um, particularly between ethnically fractured communities, between farmers and herders. Um, and so these are things where you know, particularly with with the military expert network group, they they say, you know, we're seeing this. We're called more and more into uh, various regions across the world to intervene, to do conflict prevention or to respond to places where you have things like food and water and security that are, are calling on the, the role of the military. And they said, you know, this isn't, we need development and diplomacy um, to prevent this from becoming something that we do have to intervene. Now, you mentioned there, um, you know, conflicts between ethnic groups and so on. I think, you know, when we're talking about um, climate change and food and national security, there's a reasonable recognition that hotter countries, perhaps countries that are already a drought risk, um, places where there is a higher instance of, uh, of subsistence agriculture, that those countries are, of course, uh, vulnerable to, uh, to climate change. But do you think in terms of developed countries like the USA, like the UK, um, that enough is being done to identify not just the risks to food security, but also nutrition security? And are those risks similar um, in developed countries like our own? In general, what you're getting at, and I, I like your question, which is, do do we think that we're not vulnerable? Do you think it's only in developing countries that you have climate risk? And the answer is absolutely not. The US, the UK, we are we are vulnerable. We're seeing impacts. We're seeing entire 
crops being um, destroyed by, by flooding events and extreme weather events. And so I think that, you know, I have a, a frustration with some of these climate vulnerability maps where you have things like Africa and the Sahel will be red and Middle East will be red and, you know, very climate vulnerable. And then places like the most of Europe and the U.S. will be colored green. Like everything's just going to be fine, which is absolutely not the case. You know, when we talk about climate change, we often talk about uh, climate impacts. One, the ones that we don't talk a lot about is, is health and health security. So that gets to your, your nutrition aspect. I think we need to do a lot more to understand what these risks are going to be. You know, one of, one of the things that we talk about is our responsibility to prepare and prevent. And this is, if you look at, at climate risk, particularly compared to other risks, um, we can see these risks coming. We have climate models that are developed in 1950 that are still largely accurate. If you compare this to the political, you couldn't have predicted the political environment today. And so what we really need to do, whether it's food security, water security, nutrition, health, anything that we can model and say, okay, this is there's a very high likelihood and a high probability that this is the future that we're facing. We need to start planning for that future. And by doing that, then you have greater probability of better policies in place. That's essentially what we mean by climate proofing. The whole world has already shifted and changed. We're already living in a climate change world. It's just describing the, the future world and how that's going to continue to change. I think one thing that's, that's really important and fundamental to talk about is how these changes are uh, unprecedented for human civilization. And particularly when we're talking about food security and agriculture. So if you look at the development of civilization, if you look at the development of agriculture from the very beginning, all of that occurred within, within the Holocene. Then a fairly, we had fluctuations and you know extreme weather events and things like that. But for the most part, there was this very, kind of safe bubble in which civilization advanced. If you look at the charts that say you know, where where we are within terms of um, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we've, we've left that bubble. Some people are calling this the Anthropocene. And so all civilizations living in uncharted territories. So when we talk about climate and security, what we're talking about is in a, living in a world where there's a lot of unknowns. I have a lot of concerns about agriculture because it's, it's again, it's developed within this, this bubble that, that we've left. Climate and security planning is about identifying and mitigating risk, accurately and honestly considering worst-case scenarios. To help with this, it's important to understand how climate change can accelerate threats and fan the flames of existing tensions. I asked Neil Morissetti to explain the link between climate change, food and the Arab Spring. We saw in the beginning of the Arab Spring that one of the factors that contributed to it was the riots in the markets in Tunisia, in part because of the price of bread. And that bread had gone up in price because a year before, in 2010, there had been a heat wave in, in Russia, which meant that the wheat harvest was down, so less wheat was exported. Coincidentally, in Australia and Canada, there was extreme wet weather, which resulted in, in smaller harvests. And all of that pushed the price of, of wheat up and therefore pushed the price of bread up. So not the cause of the riots and instability, but one of the contributing factors, perhaps, that sort of tipped the balance. Again, in Syria, we know the prolonged drought in the first decade of, of, of this century resulted in failed harvests. A lot of rural people moving to urban areas, put pressure on the services and resources in those urban areas. It also accelerated some of the historical tensions, some of which are religious again, a contributing factor to, to the conflict in that country. So what's really interesting there is that there's a combination of sort of local factors and global factors that are acting together. The reality is we're 7 billion on the planet today with more as the population grows. And there's a, you know, the demand on the resources is getting greater and greater. And there's an imbalance between those who have a surplus and those who have a shortage. Um, but because we lived in this, we live in this joined up world, we see the effects right across the whole planet. 
One thing that it's important to do is not to suffer from a failure of imagination. We really need to take time to think through all of these vulnerabilities, be it domestic food production or global market, food market vulnerabilities. Uh, we need to think through all the different possibilities of what could happen and plan and prepare for this. We also need to accept that some of these changes are already locked in. We have already released emissions in the atmosphere that are, some of which are, are going to stay. We've committed ourselves to a certain future. The worst can be avoided if we reduce emissions now uh, and quickly. I think we need to understand we live in a global world. And then we talk about climate change. These are, it's an international risk. It's an international opportunity as well. And so like these risks, they don't recognize national boundaries and neither do our decisions. And so it, part of it is just, is just rethinking how we understand the a, a climate change world and how we live amongst it and how our decisions can, whether we realize it or not, uh, impact people thousands of miles away. Planning to identify and mitigate risks associated with climate change requires leadership, which under the current US administration presents a degree of challenge. I asked Caitlin Werrell about the role leadership plays and where, when we're dealing with threats of this nature and on this scale, that leadership needs to come from. Executive leadership absolutely does matter <laughs> um, anywhere that, that that affects, but we, we are happy to see that the, the military has continued. Uh, to take this threat very seriously. The intelligence community has continued to take this threat very seriously across administrations. Um, the last uh, at least 12 worldwide threat assessments by the intelligence community, including under this administration, has said that climate change is a security risk. Um, there's just, it's a certain amount of, you, you have to deal with the, the reality on the ground. And so, but, but we are encouraged also by, by seeing the international community step up quite a bit more. We're seeing places like NATO, like the EU, Asia Pacific, where, where countries are increasingly understanding how we need to be working together to, to prepare and prevent um, the worst of the climate security implications. Increasingly, and not before time, attention is being brought to bear on this issue. But to effectively mitigate the impacts of climate change on local and global food supplies, we need to be able to understand where our vulnerabilities may lie. If you take the UK, we import about 40% of our food. Some of the supply chains are particularly complex. The sources of the food are in regions which will be affected increasingly by the impact of climate change, whether it's the onset of long-term trends or extreme weather events. There's demand for that food from elsewhere, whether it's from the local population where it's grown or other developed countries. Our resilience is perhaps weaker in some areas as individuals um, if, if we can't get what we want. Now, that doesn't mean we should grow everything in our own country, but we probably ought to look at trying to get the balance right. And we certainly need to understand where the, the fragility is in the supply chain. It may be because of the route it takes. Um, we know that during the ash cloud issues at the beginning of this decade, we were pretty close to running out of certain commodities uh, on the shelves. And we've seen as a result of the, of the coronavirus that our supply chains are very much just enough, just in time. And if there's disruption, then we start to lose it. Look at Australia and the bushfires at the moment. That is on a massive scale and that has really really stretched the Australian firefighting community, the rescue services, and it's happening in an area where they grow their wheat. So that one can potentially have a bearing. So what you're saying is that the complexity of our supply chains, the length of them, the, the number of different uh, breaks in that supply chain or potential breaks in the supply chain actually potentially make us perhaps as vulnerable as, as some of those um, more developing nations, but in a different way. Yeah, I think we have resilience in ways that some of those countries don't have. and We have the ability to act, but also we have greater demands on the world as a developed country and on the planet 
And many of the areas where we have those demands are, particularly in the context of food, are ones that will be impacted by a changing climate. And if we sort of think of a scenario there, maybe uh, in 10 or 20 years time when temperatures have have risen perhaps uh, another degree, um, then, you know, if, if Britain was going hungry, then I think, as, as you've indicated, we, we could import some food from somewhere else. But if Britain was going hungry at the same time as France was and Germany was, and there was conflict in the Suez Canal, then, then that, becomes, that becomes a real problem, doesn't it? Yeah. And that's why I think we have to work as nations to do two things. One, to try and remove the source of the problem, in other words, to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions quite markedly so that there is less risk of future climate change, but also acknowledge that there is climate change locked into the system for the next 30 years, whatever we do, and we need to work together as nations in order to, to, to mitigate those risks to the point at which they're manageable, to understand not just the most likely risks, but the most challenging risks, to share knowledge, to share technical expertise, and understanding of how we will meet some of these challenges. And that means you have to work beyond just your own national boundaries. In the uh, agricultural community, in the environmental community, there's a recognition that it's not just climate change that is undermining our ability to produce food potentially in the future, but also um, the crisis in biodiversity, in nature, um, the collapse in soil health that um, limits our, our capacity to even even grow food in, in the future to have uh, successful harvests. Uh, and in that way, we could be facing a sort of perfect storm if we, if we fail to couple those actions. I wonder within uh, the security community that you move in, whether biodiversity loss is something which is starting to be discussed in the same way that climate change is already being discussed. The conversation is very embryonic. It is just starting to be discussed. I think perhaps as people learn more about the impact of climate change and then start to hear more as experts talk about these the co-challenges of, bio, of biodiversity and understand you can't just carry on harvesting the land year after year and expecting to get the same sort of yields there is a growing awareness but it's pretty embryonic at the moment one of the things i would say is the way in which we assess risk the way in which we think about how much risk we can absorb what we can withstand what we prepare for we tend to think only in terms of, of one disaster we think one hurricane or one major flood and we say sure we'll be fine we can recover from that there's not a lot of thought uh, given to cascading disasters or multiple disasters in quick succession and i think that this is going to be a critical point in terms of understanding the vulnerability of places like the united states so if you have we see an incredible amount of strain within the last hurricane season where you have the national guard going to help with disaster recovery from the hurricane but at the same time are being called out to the west to fight uh, wildfires um, and so if you combine that with another major storm somewhere else in the country, it's going to put strains on it that potentially you're going to have to make hard choices. You're going to have to say, we simply can't respond in this instance because we don't have the capacity to do so. We need to understand all the different points of vulnerability. And so right now we, we see this annually where you have some place like the U.S. and the, the breadbaskets of the world, U.S.'s and Russia's. And, and fortunately, there hasn't been a situation where simultaneously all of these major food producing areas have been affected at the same time but that's not because it's impossible so that that's something where it doesn't matter where you are in the world if you are heavily dependent on the global food market and you see a major uh, impact across a lot of these food producing places you're going to be affected the other thing that i think you mentioned that was really important too is is the supply chain and how it can break down if you have um, supply routes and, and channels 
I like the Suez Canal, but also in the U.S., the Mississippi River is incredibly important for transporting uh, goods. And so if, if you have a, a climate impact on these places that break down, then that's also a vulnerability that you need to anticipate. It seems pretty clear that a lot more climate, food and security planning is needed at both global and national levels. These plans must reach out beyond the traditional military and civil security establishments and include farmers, retailers, importers, experts in nutrition, health and infrastructure, as well as other critical civil society stakeholders. I asked Neil Morissetti and Caitlin Werrell what we should be expecting from our governments right now. They've got to start to develop a plan, but I think the most important thing is they've got to engage with the public. And they've got to be honest, um, easier said than done. We live in a world which is pretty short term. The public is encouraged to believe they can have what they want, when they want, at an affordable price with limited risk. And the reality is it's not going to be like that. We need to think more long term. We need to be prepared to invest now in order to um, help future generations acknowledging that actually the amount it's going to cost now is pretty limited compared with what it will cost if we don't do anything. And we need to be willing to work together both on a regional and a sub-regional basis as much as, as in, on the international stage. Just finally, Neil, humour me a little. Um, if we fail, um, I wonder if you could paint a picture. Um, looking forward 40 years to, to when my kids are, are, are you know, around about my age, around 2060, if we fail in the UK or the USA to hold down global temperatures, if they continue to rise in terms of worst case scenarios from the IPCC, if we fail to arrest the breakdown in biodiversity, what could be the consequences for our society? We'd be living in a pretty challenging world. Um, for some countries, it would be too challenging. And parts of the world would certainly become uninhabitable. But there'll still be the population. Um, I think we face the risks of not just an uncomfortable world, because it's a, it's a warmer world and a warmer country. We'd also have a world with uncertainty. Uncertainty about where our food's going to come from, whether our imports, our trade is going to flow. Um, we could find ourselves having to deploy our military more often, perhaps on humanitarian operations, but also in order to protect interests around the world. And I think we've become a pretty touchy world as well in the process. So we really have got to do something about it. But there's some real opportunities that we act now, whether they are in the sense of health, in the sense of economic benefits, but also with co-benefits of improved stability and security around the world, which makes me think that actually, if we get this right, we can mitigate most of the risks. But it's challenging and we need to start now and we need to think long term. But if we don't manage to do that, do you think that we could be seeing a situation where there is civil conflict in Britain? There will be tension. I wouldn't go so far as to say we'd see conflict in the country, but I think we would be very fragile. And if something happened elsewhere that disrupted essential supplies to this country, then we really we would face a risk perhaps of some form of civil disobedience. But as you say, if we look and we plan and we have that honest conversation with um, society as a whole and government starts to take this, uh, this much more seriously, then we could plan to shorten our supply chains, to reduce that vulnerability um, and over-dependence on other parts of the world. We could take action to ensure that our farmland is more productive than it is today and that we're able to face the more extreme weathers, droughts or flooding that we're more likely to see as a result of climate change, then we could find that we're actually in a much stronger position, perhaps, than we are even today. 
Yeah, and I think you know, we, we should be striving to be more resilient because we're going to face more challenges in the future. And what we learn from that, we need to be prepared to share with other nations, both developed and developing, because of this because of this joined up world that we live in. If we don't, we will experience the consequences of more fragile societies collapsing um, just as much as they will where they, where they are in the world. So to summarise, there's a threat. It's very real. So we need a plan. And if we get a plan, we'll be OK. There's a threat. It's real. We need to act. We should have started acting before. We certainly need to start acting now, but we need to do it in a measured fashion. We need to think it through. We need to understand what we're trying to achieve and how we're going to achieve it. It involves all of us, but the opportunities make it worthwhile. We, we're at a very important moment in history where we're deciding what, what the future world we live in looks like. And I think if we don't take the time now to prepare, to think about this world, to really put in place climate proofing policies to, to understand uh, the risks that we face, then we're potentially facing a future of hard choices where there just aren't good opportunities available and choices where you potentially have authoritarian responses to, to these. This is the kind of issue that, that keeps me up at night is, is when you have a, a breakdown of governance, when you have a breakdown of the uh, ability to to put in place protections uh, for, for people, for the most vulnerable, uh, when you lean towards building walls versus uh, helping people move out of harm's way. We have a moment now where we can uh, put in place humanitarian policies, where we can work together to agree that this is the best for, for the most people. And I hope that we use this opportunity to do so. I hope that we use this time to, we have an incredible advancement in technology. Uh, things like satellites that are able to, to measure groundwater around the world. There's so many different ways in which we can anticipate these risks and we can get people out of harm's way now. And I, I hope that we take the opportunity to do this because if, if we don't, it could bring out the, the worst in people. And I, I hope we avoid that future. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, here's the, this is the, the important thing too, is not to just focus on the doom and gloom and to really understand that the, the technological innovations that we have and the capabilities, the, the uh, analytical capacity, we need to think about all the opportunities and ways in which we can build uh, a more resilient world, a world of the future. Climate, food and national security is a critically important issue. And right now, a lot more needs to be done to realistically analyse the threats and then to develop, fund and deliver practice and policies that mitigate the risks and help to build stronger, safer and more resilient societies. Over the next few months, we'll return to this issue and consider key aspects in more detail. But for now, I'd like to thank my guests, Caitlin Werrell from the Centre for Climate and Security and Rear Admiral Neil Morissetti, the former UK Climate, Energy and Security Envoy. If you've enjoyed listening, we have an ever-expanding back catalogue of programmes, so why not listen to those and then come back and listen to more, tell your friends, like us, review us and share our links. Farmgate is a partnership project for Farmwell and FAI Farms, and you can join the conversation on Twitter by searching for Farmgate Podcast. I've been Finlow Castain. Bye for now.